Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm privileged to have Brian Mallow on the show. Brian Mallow is a science comedian based in San Francisco who has performed for the American Chemical Society the National Association of Science Writer, Writers, Apple, Dell, NASA, and a number of other acronyms. He produces science videos for Time Magazine's website and audio essays for Neil deGrasse Tyson's radio show. Brian has led workshops and given presentations to train scientists to become better speakers for the National Science Foundation, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the National Research Council of Canada. So, without further ado, hi, <laughs> hi Brian, and welcome to Singularity yeah. One-on-One. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Unfortunately, we don't have a brew on the show, but perhaps that's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a, a glass for a brew. It's uh, Newcastle, but it's filled with water, the original beverage. Uh, there let that, we go. Let that be our sponsor today, water, <laughs> from the makers of air. Fantastic. Okay. So um, let's start our interview by asking you this, Brian. Uh, why call yourself science comedian? I mean, science is usually perceived to be a very serious thing, and comedy is quite the opposite. At least good comedy is quite the opposite. So is there any contradiction here? Um, well, I don't think so. But boy, you said a lot of interesting things in a short time there. Um uh, I think comedy can be a serious thing, uh, but that's, 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 that's almost an entirely different issue because certainly a lot of comedians attack very important uh, subjects and we have social commentators. You know, some comedians <laughs> might be more like clowns and entertainers, and I wouldn't even downplay the importance of that, of just entertaining and making people smile and laugh. But certainly a lot of our best comedians... Uh, do a little more than that. They're social commentators. They're, uh, um, you know, they have political opinions that they're that they're vocal about. So it can it can be a serious topic, science and and uh, comedy. I mean, uh, seriousness and comedy. But uh, why I call myself a science comedian? Actually, it's because I was just already doing it. I started out uh, as a comedian. I didn't have a, a qualifier on that. I was just doing it the way everyone else does it. Uh, but because I've always loved science and been a geek, it informed the kind of comedy I did. So right from the beginning, mixed in with other stuff, as I was trying to find my own voice, as, as all artists do, um, I was really doing a lot of science comedy. It was always fun for me and most interesting to me to make science references, um, to, to, to attack certain weird topics that, that maybe were a little sciencey. And so that kind of stuff always informed my comedy. And it took a lot of years. Uh, <laughs> it took a, a decade and a half or more before I realized, you know, um, some of my favorite jokes I wasn't doing all the time in nightclubs because I perform mostly at nightclubs, colleges, uh, and private events. 
And what would happen is sometimes I got private gigs for like uh, Apple or Dell or Microsoft, and there would be a bunch of engineers in the room, and I would pull out some obscure <laughs> science references that I wasn't doing for. And believe me, in nightclubs, I was doing a somewhat geeky act. But certain jokes, they just didn't get the laugh I wanted. Certain certain jokes had a little science, but they were okay for everyone. Like, you know, I used to be an astronomer, but I got stuck on the day shift, which sucks. Like, <laughs> that, that kind of line, it, that's for anybody. Um, it doesn't even have to be for a science comedian. Anyone could have written that joke. And it's just that I had a lot of stuff like that that had a science flavor to it, but it was fine for nightclub audiences or colleges. But then there were always these jokes that didn't quite hit as hard as I expected them to or wanted them to. And I realized I have to get my audience. Um, I had to get the adenine to my thymine, the guanine to my cytosine, <laughs> the complimentary audience to my brand of comedy. So the comedy that I wanted to do. So it was really a very natural evolution. Um, at some point I realized, hey, I should just call it science comedy. And I went and looked to see if sciencecomedian.com was available several years ago, which, you know, if you know anything about domain names, it's hard to just find, take two words and hope that the domain is still available. Most of that real estate is long gone. So when I found that sciencecomedian.com was available, I didn't know if that was a really good sign or a really bad sign. <laughs> you know, maybe it's undesirable real estate. It's useless. Uh, but uh, it turned out that it's, it was a good idea. And uh, uh, a lot of good stuff has followed from that decision to call it science comedy and to focus on it. Fantastic. I, I personally love the, the title. I think it's very unique. I think it's very original. And I think it's, it's also very deep. So uh, it's it's got the elements that you were mentioning about serious and comedy. So it's I think it's brilliant personally. You uh, know, it's funny. My old uh, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, my, the old domain that I used to use also had that suggestion in it. It was butseriously.com, <laughs> which I still own. But but seriously, it suggests the seriousness and it also suggests comedy. So that's the realm that I've always enjoyed working in. I always, I like serious stuff mm -hmm. um, and science in particular and interesting books and thoughts and films. And, but I also uh, love humor. Yeah. And so wherever I can mix those two, that's where, that's the intersection that I like to be at. I mean, it's not hard to see that you love what you do. So that's, that's, that always makes me happy to see people doing what they love. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, my wife has a circus company, um, <laughs> which I am helping with uh, whenever needed. So uh, I do have some experience and I, and I know how you do have to match uh, your gigs to your audience in order to evoke right. a certain response. And that's, that's indeed a very, very important element. And, and it shows through professionalism when you're able to judge your audience and adapt to it in the best way possible. Yeah, comedians have to do that on the fly quite often. You, <laughs> yeah. you, you start down a path and you go, you know what? This audience just isn't into this. I have, uh, I've misjudged. My, I prejudged them incorrectly. And uh, maybe we'll give them a little of this and see how they like it. So let me ask you this then. Is there any tension at all between science, science and comedy when you step on the stage? Um, in, in, a, in, one, in other words, can you, I mean, I can see how on the one hand, if you're too serious, you're not going to make them laugh. 
On the other f uh, hand, if you have the geeky audience, like you mentioned, the engineers at Apple or Dell or something, and you're too, I don't know, not serious, then you can't also make them laugh. And I mean, how do you, is there a balance there that you find? Or how, how do you do it? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty interesting issue because uh, I do run into those things. Um, I perform for all sorts of audiences. So I get general audiences, maybe at a comedy club. And, and actually, that's a mix. Anyone could be there, uh, science teachers, scientists, uh, science students, and then just general audience that's like, that, like me, just an enthusiast. Um, although I say I was an astronomer that got stuck on the day shift, I was never actually a scientist. Um, but, uh, the, but, but you're right, you know, people have a lot of expectations and I know that some people, when they hear science comedian, I mean, the two main ones are, they're either very psyched about the idea. Oh, science comedian. I love it. Yes. Two things I like science and comedy. Why not a, a science comedian? But I think some other people have been ruined by, we've seen bad examples of science and comedy mixing very poorly in the past. And maybe it wasn't um, a professional comedian. Like, uh, I like to think that, you know, the, the path I took is I was a professional comedian first. Mm -hmm. And then I focused on science. So mm -hmm. I took the skills as a professional comedian and focus them on the realm of science. But I think that in the past, we've seen people that are scientists uh, being funny. And believe me, I have a high opinion of the sense of humor of, of, of scientists. And I want to address this stereotype. But, uh, but, but I think we have all seen bad examples of of someone who wasn't really a comedian and maybe didn't have a sense of humor or much of one. And that, that what passed for science comedy in the past, maybe the bar was set pretty low and some people uh, don't even think that it's going to be funny. Um, and then there's what you said, which is people come, they want to be entertained, but um, if there's something I could say about the sense of humor of, of some scientists, sometimes it's very literal. <laughs> so that you not only have to be funny, but boy, they don't cut you much leeway sometimes because they're geeks. Because and, and I and I say that as a geek is that you know we I, there's a here's an example of uh, I can't laugh at just anything. I remember when the the B one B bombers first came out, the stealth bombers, and there was a very common joke that I hated. Hated. I think the B ones were the lancers actually, and the B two is the stealth one. Oh, the B-2. Okay, sorry. The B-2 then. The stealth bomber, there was this joke that I disliked for two reasons. One is that if you hear it from a lot of different people, then it's hacky and we, we've heard it. But I never could get past the flawed premise. The joke was, hey, uh, the B-2, you know, the stealth bomber, they say it's invisible. Why don't we just say we built a bunch of them? <laughs> <laughs> because it's invisible. And to me, I could never really laugh at that because it, they never said it was invisible. It's supposed to be invisible to radar. And I could never. So that's the kind of geekiness in me where I'm like, well, the, the premise is too flawed for me to go with you to the punchline. So uh, karmically, I guess, I get a lot of that because um, the audience that I want, the ones that would appreciate the subjects that I want to talk about and the references I want to rely on as punchlines, they're the kind of people that will pick apart any little flaw um, 
in it. So, I mean, I have a bit about a science issue in Star Wars, uh, mm-hmm. about the Parsec issue. A lot of people are familiar with it. The, the, you know, you haven't heard of the Millennium Falcon. It's the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. And a parsec's not a unit of time. It's a unit of distance. But as soon as... So I would have thought, I love Star Wars. I'm not... Uh, mocking the movie or George Lucas, it's an important part of my childhood. Um, I love the movie, but I like poking fun at this little science error in it, and I have a a pretty funny little spiel on it, I think. But boy, the Star Wars fans had no sense of humor about it, and I would have thought they would have (laughs) loved it, because it's like, hey, at least I'm a comedian talking about Star Wars. Um, But they took it too seriously, and they felt like I was attacking, even though I made it clear that I love love the thing. But uh, but yeah, in 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 the science realm, it, it all, there's another joke where I, I talk about the heat in Arizona, and one time in a room where there were a bunch of scientists, it it was 125 degrees, and I said, "Wow, that just sounds like science fiction." You're talking about the surface of Venus, and in the back of the room, someone yelled out, "No, Venus is much hotter than that," <laughs> and. I knew that, but I was using a comedic device called exaggeration. Yeah. So, uh, so my point there is just that uh, it's kind of funny. It's like I need to be able to use exaggeration, and I need to be able to stretch the truth a little. But when you're talking to geeks, sometimes uh, they'll they'll harp on you for that, and yeah. uh, it's pretty hard to be funny and stick to absolute literal truth um, and not use any of these other tools of humor. Yeah, and that's why it's, it's such an amazing accomplishment because I think the best jokes are also very smart at the same time while being funny, and that's why it's such an accomplishment. Uh, and to have a little truth in there, yeah. Exactly. I mean, exactly. I do like to stick. I don't want to give out any misinformation. I do want my stuff to be scientifically accurate to the extent <laughs> and mathematically accurate to the extent that it makes sense. Uh, and especially stuff. since you mentioned the serious uh, point that, that comedy tries to make, uh, then it, it's really hard to get that, to make them think that effect while at the same time making them laugh. It's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a real accomplishment. But, but let me ask you this. You've already mentioned that uh, you, uh, you were uh, a professional comedian first and only then uh, you brought science into the equation. So how did you, let's start a little bit further back. How did you become a com- comedian? Is well, it true that, that uh, uh, over the broken dreams of your parents of being a doctor, <laughs> really? Or is yeah, that there's a lot of, that, that one is, yeah, I do say that I'm not a doctor, but I play one of the broken dreams of my parents. And I would say that that's a good example of a line that it's, it's humorous, but it's very truthful. Um, uh, you know, nice Jewish boy, parents want you to be a doctor, lawyer, and uh, whatever, uh, accountant like dad. But uh, uh, from the earliest age, I was interested in science. Uh, farther back than I could, than I, I mean, I know that I grew up with uh, liking humor as well, as all humans do, but even to the extent that we had some George Carlin and Richard Pryor albums in the house early on, and there was an original album from the, the first crew of Saturday Night Live, uh, you know, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin and, and all them, and... Um, so I did like comedy, but I think my first love was science. 
and I read science fiction. I'm not even sure which came first, but science fiction and science have always been tied together for me because the kind of science fiction that I really started on was hard science. And it was Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, and Larry Niven, uh, the guys who... Where you could see there's not much of a difference between science and science fiction because they they took the science seriously and they extrapolated. So they were loaded with Larry Niven's stuff was loaded with black holes and neutron stars, and it was just amazing, thought provoking, imaginative science fiction. And Asimov in particular, I think, led me to science uh, because Asimov and Clark wrote so much nonfiction. And I found that their nonfiction was was awesome as well. So uh, that was my early interest in science. And I also started writing uh, s- poems, short stories, the shortest short stories. Like the first stories I wrote were little science fiction stories. And they were kind of that Twilight Zone-ish, um, one-page kind of stories, which I always thought later that it is kind of interesting to look back sometimes and see a path that you didn't, that you only see in retrospect. All the kinds of writing I did were very similar to comedy writing way before I knew I was going to go into comedy. The kinds of poems and lyrics that I wrote, later I wrote songs with a friend of mine who played keyboards. Um, you could tell the last line, the last verse, the last line of the last verse typically had a note of finality. And not all song lyrics are like that, but a lot of mine were, where it was kind of a punchline. And the short stories I wrote, um, they were those with the little twist ending. They were very simple one-idea stories <clears throat> with a little twist at the end, which is essentially a punchline. So when I did get into comedy, it was interesting to look back and go, huh, I've always been writing in that direction. And... All those were good practice for writing jokes because jokes have to be very concise. You have to cut away all the... It's a lot like the difference between a short story and a novel mm-hmm. or, or a poem. Um, joke writing, uh, it's a, it, the, there's a huge importance in efficiency and uh, brevity. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't actually try comedy until I was in graduate school at the University of Texas in Austin. What were you taking? I was, so radio, television, and film. I was getting, I was studying television production. That's where I learned my my video skills. I had uh, graduated from the University of Texas. I was out for a year. I actually was, Macintosh computers were very new at the time, Mm -hmm. and me and a partner had gotten into this business of selling accessories. We were selling software and accessories uh, for Macs, mostly. Mm -hmm. And I decided to go back to graduate school to study TV production, which, again, um, it was two things were happening simultaneously. As I was doing that, I tried comedy in a competition and I got a taste of it and I liked it and I got some encouragement. So I kept doing it so much so that by the very end of the master's program, I decided to take the path of least resistance and I just didn't finish my final project, which is still a thorn in my side. And I went on to become a comedian and I only came back to video in the past few years, making videos for Time Magazine's website. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's something that was a like a, a thread, a subplot that we didn't follow up on 
for many years. And now I'm excited about that possibility. Let me see if I can bring those points here together. First of all, okay. I want to say I'm a big fan of your time videos. This is how Thanks. I discovered you. I, I love them. But that leads me to the next point, and you're talk, you just mentioned the thread. So let me ask you this. Is there an overarching theme between your jokes and your videos? Or what's, in other words, what's the motivation and the ultimate goal behind your work? Is it to make us laugh? Is it to make us think? think? Is it to, to help us appreciate science? And, and I mean, at the end of the day, what is more important? Is it more important to make the audience laugh or is it more important to make them think, oh, I should really consider this or make take away the serious point from you? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think that all of those are part of it. I'm not sure that I've had an overt theme that I've been working from or working on, and maybe I should, and maybe I should give more thought to it. But it, it's funny, early on as a comedian, I was always told that I would be a good teacher. You're trying not to take that as an insult. You know, they, they see you perform comedy and they say, maybe you should be a teacher. Um, but there was something, there's always been something in me that has wanted to turn people on to interesting ideas, books, music, movies. Um, but certainly ideas. Um, when I come across an interesting idea or an interesting uh, nugget of science, um, like, I mean, one, that, that this has always fascinated me, and I don't have 100% confirmation on it, but it seems true. It's like, it's those kind of everyday things. It's that when you get out of a shower or a pool, that the reason you feel cold, it's like, why do you feel cold? Well, you're wet, but it's not as simple as that. Um, it's my understanding that the water that evaporates, the water that's on our skin, as it evaporates, it's an endothermic reaction. Um, it absorbs heat. It, it takes uh, the absorption of heat to raise it from the liquid to the, to the gas state. So that process of water evaporating from our skin, it draws heat from our body. And that's why we feel cold. Well, I love that kind of idea because it's something that is so under our radar that most of us don't think about it. You, you wouldn't even give, most people wouldn't give thought to why you're cold. Well, I'm wet, that's why I'm cold. But obviously scientists uh, are able to, they have the imagination to think a level below that, go, well, wait a minute, there's, a, there's actually a reason. And if I'm correct, and that is the reason, as I've been told, that I think that's fascinating. So there's always been something in me that loves to discover that. I'm, I've got an insatiable curiosity. And then once I find something like that, I, I don't know, I'm very compelled to share it with people. Um, similarly, I don't know, I like the idea of the sense of humor. I even like that phrase. <laughs> I, I have a sense of humor. I do feel like I sense humorous potential that is about um, when other people maybe don't. And it actually kind of surprises me because if you're in a group of people, sometimes there's something that I think is the obvious next thing to say. So I say it. I'm thinking it's going to be funny, but it also, it just seems obvious. It pops into my head. I don't know where it came from, but I say it and everyone laughs, which is a reaction of surprise. It takes them by surprise. It makes them laugh. And it's like, how come I... How come that seems so obvious to me? And, you know, the same must be true of some of the other the, the writers that you've interviewed. Um, 
in a way, not to uh, belittle how much work they put into their writing, but a lot of it is inspired, and it's the way their mind works quite naturally, lucky for them. Um, I mean, same with me. Some jokes I need to really work on, but a lot of times there's an inspiration there that's, that's, that, that might be the entire joke or take you pretty far. So that's an amazing – I love doing that. Um, I love making people laugh. I love making people think. I'm not even sure that those are separate things. I think when you make someone laugh – you have made them think in a way that they weren't thinking. That, that uh, I've read a little bit about theory of humor, uh, and it's a tough subject. I don't think we really know that much about it, and it's something I want to study a little more. But it's, there's something about making connections that you didn't previously see that were not obvious. So when wordplay makes an interesting connection or when any kind of joke um, makes you connect to things that you didn't previously connect. And we have this response of laughing. I think it's doing both. It's, it's making you, I, I, that's the kind of jokes that I really like anyway. It's jokes that are really funny, but they also make you think. So that's what I would shoot for. I don't think that all my stuff necessarily does that. Some stuff is silly. Um, but some stuff, I like to turn people on to ideas. Yeah, and definitely. so if I can do a little of that, Definitely, yeah, you do good. that. I, and I, I would venture to say that you do it more often rather than not, especially in your time videos, uh, because you do raise some very interesting, what I would call philosophical, deeper philosophical issues or humanistic issues uh, pertaining to the human condition, etc. cetera, uh, at the same time while making people laugh. So, that, I mean, that's, that's why I like them so much. Um, but another thing that I find kind of which is both kind of funny and serious about you is your sort of a very interesting and what some would call geeky hobby <laughs> related to insects can you tell us a little more about that how it came to be what exactly it is oh yeah it's about insect photography and and by that i don't mean photographs taken by insects um, which would be an interesting art form. You'd like to see things from their perspective. In fact, actually, I think most of the time I do strive to, to almost present that because I do want to get down on their level. Um, and it's a fun hobby that I've done for several years. I haven't really done much lately. I have a great domain, though. It's insectpaparazzi.com. I love and it, too. And I do have uh, just about a dozen pictures up there, and I, I dropped the ball. I, I, I put some up I, uh, a while back, and I have hundreds, and I, I need to do more. But I'll tell you how I came to it. I always wanted to get into photography. I never, I didn't uh, have a long history with cameras, but I always felt like uh, that's another thing I I like I, I noticed things that I thought would make good. I thought I had a good eye of something that would make a good picture. And I finally got an inexpensive point-and-click digital camera several years back. And it happened to have a really nice – it had a macro setting and it had a super macro setting. And it was sort of like Marshall McLuhan, uh, the medium is the message. Just the fact that I had a macro lens – made me go out and start looking for extreme close-ups to shoot mm -hmm. and textures of things. And I, I loved this. I love that. Uh, it can be very simple things and sort of abstract, uh, but textures of things. And then plants are very obvious. Flowers, 
very easy to get a pretty picture of a flower um, or a butterfly for that matter. Butterflies are kind of like the uh, supermodels of the insect world. It's, you know, you're almost guaranteed a beautiful picture if you got a beautiful bug. So um, I think it was that. I started looking for things. I started shooting plants. Sometimes there was a bug on the plant. And I'm like, hey, it's science and it's art. <laughs> and I started becoming most interested in the insects and uh, started going out of my way. And, you know, it's great because to really do it right, you have to be willing to be uh, on the ground, down on their level, shooting right. If, if uh, One of the pictures I love is this uh, cicada, and it was on a sidewalk. And the only way to get the shot that I wanted was to lay all the way down on the sidewalk and put the camera on the ground and shoot right into his face. So that's sort of the bug's eye view. <laughs> like, come on down to his level. And and it's kind of funny. I've I've had people, strangers, walk by me while I was doing something extreme like that on the ground to get the shot. But, you know, it's the least I could do, I guess. And I think that hobby made you, uh, I mean, led you to a very interesting discovery insect discovery that you made a few years ago? You know, I, uh, some of the pictures I took, I uploaded to a, an interesting website called bugguide.net. And it's, um, it's only for North America, but so it would include Canada and the U.S. And, and what it is, is uh, it's like a, a huge collection of insect photos as well as data about them. Like what they want is where it was taken and when it was taken so things can be plotted seasonally. There's a lot of data there. Um, and so although there are some beautiful artistic photos there, the ones I uploaded there were really more just straight. It was more about uh, insect identification mm -hmm. and the data around it. Mm -hmm. So I uploaded some images and there's a community and some of them are entomologists and some of them enthusiasts and they discuss some of them. So there's a picture I took of a fly. Um, it's a fly that looks sort of like a bee. There's a, there are a lot that are like this. It's maybe it's a bit of a mimic. So, you know, that, that protects it by looking a little like a bee. Um, uh, it doesn't get attacked by some of the things that, that might go after it if it was a fly. So, um, I took this picture, I uploaded it, an entomologist in the Netherlands and conferred with another entomologist from the Smithsonian, and they said that this photo was the first instance of this particular species in, they said, the Nearctic. And the Nearctic is one of the, there's a handful of biological areas that they've divided the globe into. And then the Arctic includes all of North America and Greenland. And it's, it's a common, it's not a new species. It's common in Europe, but it was completely unknown here. And this is the first photo that they're, that's definitely this species. And it's the first evidence that they had for it in this part of the world. And my joke about it is that, you know, I took the picture in Golden Gate Park, so uh, it's probably just a tourist, you know, he doesn't really live here. Um, but, the, you know, I actually asked, is that how unusual it is? And it's not surprising because uh, the larvae could be in wood that gets transported across the globe. It's just a matter of, like, they like to track these things and know about it. And then they said the next thing was to find a voucher specimen so that they could have one in a collection. It's like, here, this this. Uh, actual mm -hmm. specimen was found here. But I don't really know it well enough. Like, I couldn't tell that species apart from a very similar one that might be common here. But so, you know what? It's been really fun, and it's made me learn a lot. And if there's a theme from it, there's probably a few. But one is 
is that there's stuff all around us that if you just open your eyes, um, you'd be surprised. Sometimes if you look on the underside of a leaf, you're walking right past something very interesting. Um, if you just dig a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or if you just stop and look a little harder at the plant life around you, you might see more than you see at first glance. And it could perhaps be an alternative route to that doctor's degree that would make your parents happy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You know, I've com- I have seriously thought about it, and it, it would be nice. Um, I still love science. Um, I'm just not sure at this point if I want to devote the time that I would have to put in to get a PhD, if that time would be better spent creating more media, comedy, books, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's kind of the reason why I decided to stop at the master's degree myself. What's your uh, master's in? Well, actually, it was in uh, international relations, and my specialty was armed conflict. So that's why I know the difference between the B1 and the B2. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, but uh, let me ask you a question on your other hobby. You already mentioned that you had a, a, an interest in, early interest in writing short science fiction stories. Um, I know that recently you managed to publish your first uh, sci-fi story. So why not share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, that was really pretty easy the way it came about. It's actually based on a bit of a routine I have that's about time travel. And the time travel bit has a few scenarios. And actually, I adapted it into one of my pieces for time. It's actually one of my most successful pieces for time.com is um, is time travel scientifically possible or a title something like that that explores whether and it was because what new movie was coming out there was a whole rash like a year or so ago of i think maybe the time traveler's wife and some uh flash forward was out and and all these uh tv and film projects involving time travel so um a friend of mine that i met at a science conference john gilby was listening to my cd Rational Comedy for an Irrational Planet. And he was inspired by this one scenario in this joke, and he thought it would make a great short, short science fiction story. And Nature Magazine has a series that is sort of in the back pages. It's called Futures, and it's pretty much a one-page science fiction story. So John wrote a first draft and sent it to me, and then we bounced it back and forth a number of times and submitted it. And that's yeah, my first published science fiction story. And, uh, uh, yeah, based on a, a, a comedy routine. So is it, is it funny or is it a profound story? Oh, it's sort of, you know, like I said, it's a short, short. I wouldn't say it's profound. No, it's more funny. It, it's kind of, and in, in fact, the two characters are basically me and John. And uh, it stems from the fact that we've bumped into each other at a few conferences like this. And so it has to do with a science conference. And the joke is about... Um, Stephen Hawking has actually said that one reason he thinks time travel is impossible is that if it were ever invented, then we would see time traveling tourists here amongst us and we don't. And my thought on that is that, well, I don't know, maybe we do. They're not going to be obvious, right? <laughs> They're not going to wear yeah. you know, shiny leotards and uh, spandex. They're going to try, if they have pointy ears, they're going to wear a ski cap. 
over him. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're going to try to blend in, which is why every once in a while when I meet a stranger, instead of asking, where are you from? I like to ask, when are you from? In the hope that I might trip one up. And then there's a little more uh, to the joke than that. But that's basically the scenario is about trying to trip up a time traveler, um, having reason to believe that there might be a time traveler at mm -hmm. this advanced conference mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and trying to trip them up in conversation by acting like I'm one also. Hey, you know, um, I'm from 2170. When are you from, you know? By the way, I, I, I remember watching that video that you mentioned. <laughs> um, and if I remember correctly, perhaps one of the occasions that led you to do it was the, uh, the coming out of source code. You remember that science fiction movie which deals yeah. precisely with time travel? Source. I like source code. I think this was before that, but... Um, it might have uh, been before. About yeah, it, but, but I did enjoy Source Code. I thought it was a pretty fun one. Yeah. Um, time travel is such a great... I love time travel stories. And maybe that's in the... You know, even though I, I, I started liking hard science fiction mm -hmm. um, and time travel, it's hard to say... Uh, I think it's been done well by hard science fiction writers who they try to you they'll try to take anything whether it's faster than light travel or time travel um, and then give it a hard science edge make it seem plausible and bring it so even uh, you know something that might sound like fantasy but bring it into the realm of science fiction by by making it sound plausible um, I love that so let me ask you this you you you're interested in insects. <laughs> you do comedy, you teach scientists to speak better, to do better public speaking. Um, you have a degree in TV production. Um, um, I, I left right before the degree, so. <laughs> well, you, you still <laughs> took away the skills with you, clearly. I took the skills instead of the piece of paper, yeah. So, so what else, what other new projects are you working on other than all of that, which is a handful to begin with? <laughs> well, um... Again, I do some little audio pieces for Neil deGrasse Tyson's radio show, which is fun. And uh, he, he has uh, his show is not on public radio like most science programming. It's actually on commercial radio mm -hmm. and it's sponsored by the it's partially at least funded by the National Science Foundation. And mm -hmm. it's hoping to reach a broader audience. Mm -hmm. And so uh, each of his shows has a theme. And when he requests a piece from me tells me the theme and I just write something here and I record it and I send him the mp3 which so I love that and I send it to him by Saturday or Sunday so it can be on his Sunday show um the I I'm really enjoying what I'm doing which is I guess plenty right now but uh um the video stuff which is which I've come back to in the past few years has been a lot of fun and I want to get better at it and I want to do more I have some ideas uh, for more video content. And Long there's a Canadian connection somewhere? Um, well, the Canadian connect, not, not to video as much as these workshops, uh -huh. uh, the training I've done for scientists, uh, started with the National Research Council in Canada. They contacted me and asked me if I did any speaker training for scientists. And they had seen some of my time videos and they had seen my stand-up. And I guess thought that... Uh, that I do some science communication. They liked the time videos where I was actually communicating. You know, in my stand-up, here's another issue that as a comedian, my only obligation is to entertain. Mm -hmm. But as a science comedian, there's an expectation that, that I'm also going to educate. 
And maybe for all of them. Yes. Um, there's a spectrum between entertainment and education. And maybe for a comedian, I've always worked a farther along down the line towards education. Um, but again, the only thing I have to do is make people laugh. But um, I love science. I love turning people onto these ideas. So if I can turn them onto ideas and make them fun, um, and that's a great way to turn people onto things is is just find, you know, to pass on, uh, is to make it fun. But also, you know, if I just imbue it with some passion, which some of my time videos aren't trying to be very funny because they're just cool. Science is is cool. Um, so I w- hope that I at least um, get that across a little. If it's not funny, at least I'm getting some enthusiasm for a really interesting idea or technology. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> I think I lost myself there for a second. The question was um, about your new projects. Right. So the, the stand-up, I do want to do more with it and more towards education. Um, not just entertaining. A lot of my comedy is just silly, and I, I think that's fine, and it entertains people with hopefully smart stuff they haven't, uh, a flavor of stuff they haven't been entertained with before, mm-hmm. so that I can entertain people at a Humanities Plus conference or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I love that. But if I can also uh, educate a little and turn people onto these ideas and make them laugh at it, and especially if people are intimidated by science, if I can get them to laugh at it, maybe that goes a little uh, towards breaking down that kind of uh, unnecessary fear of science. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so it's only in the past couple years again that I've gotten into video, and I'm very excited about the possibility. So I want to hone my skills a bit, and I have some projects that nothing I'm ready to really uh, to discuss, but just uh, mm-hmm. uh, fun science video stuff. Well, yeah. I can't I can't wait to see them because I I love all the other videos that you've made. Thanks. Um, and I would actually post a link to my audience because I, I think uh, I, I've reposted them a couple of times before on yeah. the blog, but I'll, I'll post the full Thank link you very much. You them. like the Philip K. Dick one. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. And the that other was... one about uh, which, which brings me actually to the next question. Uh, I, I also liked uh, and the first video I saw of yours was the one about the singularity. So, so let me ask you, I mean, I, I already kind of know the question because I saw your video and, and so on, but what is your take on the technological singularity? Well, the video itself, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's my take at exploring mostly the Hollywood mm-hmm. impression of, of the singularity. And uh, it's the Frankenstein stories, it's, which is true. Um, it's, it's, it's treated the same as, as most new technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, they come along and they're... Uh, there's here's a good little scary tale of what happens when it all goes wrong. Um, I don't, not that I don't have any fears of some of the possibilities here, but I don't know that that's exactly my take. But but it was fun to play with and explore the Hollywood perception of that, and then uh, uh, add my little take and a little bit about Roomba and. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, and and I really like the joke that I was so happy to finally do something with is that it's just something I saw a long time ago, which is uh, the Isaac Asimov book of stories called I, Robot. I, Robot. I One time I stumbled on a website that was in Spanish, and there I saw the title, Yo, Robot. And I just that's just always cracked me up. I've yeah. never even really written a joke around it because it's always like, Yo, Robot. It's like, yeah. that's so funny to me that that's the actual title. And then if you look, if you Google... If you don't believe me, Google it and do an images search, uh, Google images, and you'll see some book titles with iRobot, and you'll see um, a movie poster with Will Smith that says, Yo, Robot. Um, anyway, very funny. So, um, so putting aside the video, your yeah. personal take on it then? Well, I'm thrilled at some of the possibilities. I've, I'm, I like to be optimistic. Um, it, Coloring some of this is, as far as like my view of the future in general, I've always been very optimistic. And one of the things about science fiction that I always loved was laying out under the stars and looking up at, at, at the star-filled heavens and thinking about all these stories by Asimov and Clark and Niven. And, 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 and I always, it used to kill me to think that I think this stuff is going to happen. And I don't know that I'm going to live long enough to see it. And I want to. So uh, that always like kind of killed me, like thinking that I don't think it'll happen in our life uh, lifespan. Um, but now it's turning out that some amazing, some incredible things have already happened in our lifespan. And the rate that things are, if we listen to Kurzweil, the rate that things are accelerating, you know, in a couple decades, we might see some thrilling stuff, the kind of stuff that Charlie Strauss has written about and Greg Egan. I don't know. Um, I like to, I, yeah, I don't have a firm opinion. I'm a little bit agnostic on this mm -hmm. in terms of what I actually think will happen. Um, so let I'm me, a little fearful about the environment. I mean, I'm really concerned about climate change and are we going to do something about that? Mm -hmm. But I think that whether we do or not, this rate of change in, in tech is going to accelerate. And I hope that it addresses longevity in time to save me uh, <laughs> and it, at least extend my view a little farther into the future. Uh, because I do think if we don't destroy ourselves, I think it's inevitable that I'm a very big fan of the, of the uh, manned space program. Mm -hmm. And I think it's inevitable that, that we're going to spread. That's all we've ever done. The whole history of evolution Absolutely. is about how we can't be contained and we fill every ecological niche. And yeah. I don't think a little thing like gravity or the vacuum of space is going to stop us for long. I think it's just one more uh, lip of one more jar that we've crawled out of. We crawled out onto dry land from the, the ocean womb that we perhaps started in. Mm -hmm. um, and that was harsh enough. I think that that it's inevitable that we'll spread. I do think that. Um, yeah. So, so you, you said that you're not sure exactly if and what's going to happen, but let me ask you this, this way then. Um, Ray Kurzweil is often criticized for being too optimistic. Yeah. What, in your opinion, is our chance of surviving the singularity if it were to happen? <laughs> Now, I, I, I do know that you, you do keep a hostage in your closet as a bargaining <laughs> chip, so, uh, which is your Roomba, for those who right. haven't seen the videos yet. But what do you think is our chance of surviving anything like that? You know, I think it's a good question. And it's like, well, what, what would we have to survive? Do we have to survive the AI, uh, the AI that we create or that, that comes into being 
uh, in the Rob Sawyer books that whether we created intentionally or not. But you know what? Even short of that, I wonder if, can we, are we ready for the singularity? Are we ready for forgetting an AI for a second? The kinds of technologies that are in Accelerando that um, I look around and look how humans behave in crowds, in be in traffic, and at ball games. <laughs> Do you want these people to have at their virtual fingertips the kind of power that in Werner Vinge? Like, do you want these kinds of people to have uh, behind them a bodyguard, floating armed uh, robot bodyguard that, that that can zap you? You know that 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 calls into question your defenses. I'm not sure if I want people to. Have have I don't know. I think that that as fast as the technology is accelerating, are we uh, when are, are we going to evolve to be able to handle this stuff? Are we going to use it? Pro- I've, I've seen recently John Shirley, uh, sci-fi writer, has a great piece in IO9 that came out in November that I just stumbled upon. That's about the singularity and and I think that you know people talk about. Um, Let's say we have cornucopia machines, and let's say we're, you know, post-scarcity. I mean, we have yet to see an example where all the wealth gets shared properly. You know, it's, it's not properly distributed or evenly distributed. Um, so at what point are we going to evolve enough that if the technological ability is there? I mean, right now, we could feed everyone on the planet, I'm told, but we're not. So at what point um, will our nobility and our will our will our emotions evolve to the point that we can have this technology and let it not destroy us or let it not be an even more extreme class system? Uh, yeah, that's I wouldn't want to see that. Uh, I wouldn't even if I was one of the the few. I, I think that. I'd feel a lot better if 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 there was a little more sharing going on. I don't want to sound like a communist, but uh, <laughs> a little sharing. I mean, you know, wouldn't that be the Christian thing to do, America? Um, I don't like the waving around of, of Christianity uh, when 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 people aren't actually behaving in a Christ-like manner. And I'm not, like I said, I'm an agnostic Jew saying that, um, <laughs> wishing for. Uh, you know, it's going, hey, I wouldn't even mind you calling it a Christian nation if you would at least behave like it was a Christian nation. Start helping out the poor and the needy and sharing a little. And and let's look at that discrepancy a little harder. <laughs> Fascinating, Brian. Um, so let, let me ask you this then. In your own words, who is Brian Mallow? Are you a comedian, a scientist, a journalist, a photographer, a philosopher? Now, an edutainer. Stand-up philosopher. <laughs> Stand-up philosopher, yeah. Stand-up philosopher. <laughs> That's your choice? Uh, no, I, you know what? I, I like, is that all? Is that the whole list? It was a pretty good list there. <laughs> um, I, I do like all of those. I, you know, I've always had a problem with labels. Uh, I've never liked the labels, except for on opaque packages, because I want to know what's inside them. But, um... In general, I've had trouble applying labels to myself. Like, even when I first started doing comedy, I didn't want to call myself a comedian. I just wanted to say that this was one of the things I do. Because I actually, early on, thought writing first. When I first started comedy, I thought, 
um, I would write a book before I would get very far in comedy. And uh, I've yet to write that book, but, but you know, yet I will. Um, well, you just published your first short story, so the well, book is go. on the There's way. <laughs> and that's a whopping one page. So oh, how many do you need for a book? You know, just a few more of those, right? 200 of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, you know, hey, I, I always liked, like, I, I went on. I told you I started with science, uh, hard science fiction. Then later, Philip K. Dick became my favorite and uh, stuff that wasn't necessarily hard science. And he wrote good 150, 200-page books, short little books. Very yeah. read. None of these Kim Stanley Robinson uh, great, uh, Werner Vinge. Yeah. It's like, hey, I want to read something casual. How about a 700-page book by Werner Vinge? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I actually have finally started Deepness in the Sky. I absolutely love A Fire Upon the Deep. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like that. It's like I'm more likely to pick up a little dick book than uh, – but Vinge is so good. Yeah. So good. It, immediately engaging. So as far as uh, all those labels – I do like all of them. I like, um, I don't even feel like they're that different. I think what I am, and the only thing I, I, uh, I like to do is I feel like I like to observe. I like to gather data, all this various input, uh, and then processes, process it through my brain which has been shaped, as each of our brains has been uniquely shaped by genetics and environment. And then we process the information that comes into it and spit it out. And that's the only, like, I don't think I, I don't know that I have a lot of other uh, marketable skills. And beyond this, it's like, this seems to be what I'm best at. I like to process this stuff and what comes out could be a joke. Or it could be a weird, thought-provoking idea. Or it could be a photo. Um, my fiancé has gotten into, uh, has really been experimenting with cooking. And we've been kind of eating low-carb and paleo. Mm-hmm. And she's been doing a lot of cooking experiments, uh, which we like photographing. And uh, what, uh, what I'd like to do then is do some extreme close-ups, macro photos that are really abstract. Like they start out being photos of the dish that she cooked. Here's what she cooked. But then I move in and I start doing more artistic uh, abstract macros uh, that are just zoomed in that you wouldn't even necessarily know what it is. Um, so I just find that uh, a, a really fun way to spend some time. And I love uh, the final product. So it, it's that. I think that that's, I think all of those things are aspects of it, but in the end, it's just data crunching, put things through this machine. And, you know, I love, I'm voracious, uh, voracious in terms of my curiosity. I want to learn more. Um, Speaking there's a lot of learning of more, let me, let me interrupt you here. What is the best place where people can learn more about you? Uh, sciencecomedian.com. And I'm science comedian most places on YouTube and on Twitter. Um, I'm overdue for uploading new content to YouTube. Uh, and uh, sciencecomedian.com, though, is the main place. Mm-hmm. Some other stuff will sprout from there. But uh, Fantastic. Yeah. And let me ask you this. The, the traditional question that I finish my, all my interviews with is, is this. What is the one thing or the single most important message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? From this interview, even? Um, well, 
maybe it's a little bit what I was just what I was just saying and 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 something that I touched on with the uh, insect paparazzi idea is that uh, is that it, that we live in an amazing universe and looking around at it and we you know sometimes as we grow up um, we lose that childlike wonder with the world and we get focused on very practical we get channeled into uh, so that we focus on more practical issues and that's what growing up is about um, but that's one of the things I love about scientists and and I I get asked quite often, do scientists have a sense of humor? And I think that they get such an unfair stereotype because of all the people I can think of, they have hung on to, more than anyone, that childlike wonder with the universe. They'll devote their careers and their lives and their passions to things like, why does that ant do that? You know, why, why does that, uh, why does the oil uh, on the surface of a puddle make that weird rainbow uh like that, that those are the kinds of issues that consume scientists and it's like wow it's like if you want to ask who has passion and childlikeness and and wonder and humor why don't you ask about lawyers and and doctors and accountants but scientists i don't think you have to ask i think that they're the closest to it they're hanging on to that and they're still seeing the world with fresh eyes so i think that that's that's what i i like to do i i think that i haven't gotten over that i haven't grown up you can call me Peter Pan, but uh, <laughs> but um, I but I don't think that it's that it's a bad kind of childishness um, that lets us keep seeing the world in fresh ways and and to look a little deeper, like uh, look under that leaf, and there might be a praying mantis for all you know, and all you had to do was look under the leaf, and there's an egg or something under there, and uh, sometimes it just takes that, so. Um, I'm very pro-imagination and uh, curiosity and the quest to satisfy our curiosity. Something like that. Fascinating. Brian Mallow, thank you very much for being with us on Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. Yeah, very nice talking to you. Thank you, Brian.